0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I have with me today... Representative Robert Sprague, representing the 83rd District of the Ohio House of Representatives. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to have you here. Um, Representative Sprague is currently serving his second term in the Ohio House of Representatives. He serves the 83rd District, as I mentioned earlier, which consists of Hancock and Hardin counties, as well as parts of Logan County. Representative Sprague currently serves on the House Finance Committee and is chairman of the Finance Subcommittee on Health and Human Services. Additionally, he serves on the Financial Institutions, Housing and Urban Development Committee, Health and Aging Committee, and the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee. That's got to make for a busy day. Some days. (laughs) (laughs) So, since you've taken office, Representative Sprague, you've sponsored or endorsed 14 pieces of opioid-related Legislation—that's very impressive. Why is the issue so important to you?
2: Well, I think first of all, as a father of five, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about this. I've got uh, a 14-year-old little boy, uh, 12, 10, and eight-year-old little boys, and a little four-year-old little girl. Um, and we happened to actually be coming home from a, a piano recital when a constituent called me from Hardin County, and she said, uh, "Sir," she said. Uh, I just wanted to let you know about my daughter. Um, She said my daughter is is addicted to heroin. I have two daughters that are both addicted to heroin. Uh, They got started with prescription pills. As a matter of fact, uh, her oldest daughter was a track star, got injured when she was 17, uh, running track, went to the family physician. Family physician gave her, I don't know if it was Vicodin or Percocet or, or Oxycontin, but gave her a narcotic. And then the oldest daughter went back, unbe- unbeknownst to the mother, to get refills for the prescription multiple times. And to make matters worse, um, as she became addicted to the medication, she then gave it to her little sister, and so her little sister then also became addicted to the medication. And they uh, they had been these girls had been out of, in and out of rehab seventeen different times. Um, she had uh, the mother had lost their home. Uh, because they had bankrupted their family, essentially trying to get their daughter's help and get them back into recovery. And uh, her husband had had a massive heart attack when they found the youngest daughter um, injecting when she was pregnant. And she said, Rivers and Sprague, she said, you've got to do something about this. And I gave her the normal political reply of, you know, absolutely, I'll look into it. We'll address this down at the state house." She said, no, she said, that's not good enough. She said, you... Need to do something about this, and that began kind of my interest in the heroin epidemic in Ohio.
1: Well, the uh, the legislation that you've been involved in has really ranged quite a bit, from uh, addressing parental consent for minors to be prescribed opioids to making Narcan readily available to prevent overdose deaths. Um, and a recap, by the way, of the legislation that you've been involved in will be on our website associated with this, uh, this podcast. So for our listeners, what do we want to highlight here of, of all of that legislation that's already been passed?
2: Well, I think let's start out with a couple of things that save people's lives. And I think this is tremendously important, I guess for me, perhaps because of my faith, uh, the way that uh, I think the good Lord looks at people and the value of their lives. Um, and we need to, in my opinion, really value people's lives and try to save their lives so that they can have a chance to get into recovery and regain the lives that they had before their addictions. Um, the first thing we need to do is try to stop people from killing themselves through overdoses. The, the leading cause of, of a lot of these overdose is now in the state of Ohio is fentanyl. The fentanyl and the heroin is illicitly manufactured in labs in Mexico Uh, it makes its way across the border at the el paso texas border crossing and then travels up to ohio and actually uh, columbus we believe is the eastern distribution point for the eastern united states from the mexican drug cartel and so that fentanyl is prevalent here and i believe that unfortunately ohio had the largest number of heroin and fentanyl related overdoses in the entire nation last year we had 2482 people die in the state of Ohio last year from um, overdose, from overdose death.
1: We just, we're just here in Akron for this podcast, and just on in a 24-hour period starting this past Tuesday, we had 19 overdoses here in Akron and one death in a 24-hour period.
2: And I think w- another thing that I've learned over the course of talking about this and listening to others is that, you know, People who haven't who struggling with an addiction don't think rationally necessarily about their addiction and about what they are going to do. So when you talk about people overdosing, one of the things that I've learned is that uh, other people who have an addiction will actually look at the people who overdosed and instead of running from that drug dealer, which you would think would be the logical conclusion that my friend just died or nearly died of a drug overdose, I'm not going to go to that drug dealer. Instead, what they do is they actually run toward that drug dealer? Because, they flock to
1: it, don't
0: they?
2: Uh, evidently, uh, because they, they think that it has, they have stronger stuff. And so this is obviously, you know, if you think that uh, punishment is a deterrent uh, for a person that's struggling with an addiction, you can see how this addiction is really driving all of their actions and all their decisions. And um, so that's why we created the Good Samaritan Law, which the governor signed into law uh, probably about three weeks ago now. And what this law does is it essentially says, if you call 911 and you are trying to help save someone else from a drug overdose, uh, then you will be exempt from prosecutor for my, prosecution for minor drug possession. So we're still going to be able to go after the drug dealers, but other people that are using, we know that eight out of 10 people who use heroin or abuse prescription drugs um, do that with somebody else. But 8 out of 10 people that die of a drug overdose are found alone. So, we, I mean, you know, obviously people just scatter to the winds as soon as somebody overdoses because they don't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to encourage that uh, through that piece of legislation to save people's lives. And then the second piece is to make naloxone, which is the antidote for a heroin overdose or a prescription drug overdose, a narcotics overdose, to make naloxone more available. And so we passed House Bill 4 earlier this year, It basically allows any family member, friend, or person that's struggling with an addiction to go into a pharmacy and get a naloxone kit so that they have that on hand in case of a drug overdose. That's terrific.
1: So, now let's talk about future legislation. What are you working on today that could make a difference here in the opiate epidemic?
2: Well, I think there's a a couple of factors. Um, You know, the first is we've got to We've got to realize that almost 80% of the people that eventually turn to heroin start out with a prescription painkiller. That I'll tell you what, if you talk to anybody about the 1990s and the heroin problem that we had in the 1990s, they'll tell you that it was regarded as a very dirty drug. And that has always been the stigma that has been the moat around heroin. Unfortunately, the bridge over the moat became the prescription painkillers. People think that they're safe to abuse. Why? Because they come out of the medical system. I mean, they're a pill that's prescribed by the doctor. I mean, why can't I go to a party if I'm a teenager and have a beer and then uh, throw a bunch of pills into a bowl and then take one out and have a good time that night? I mean, they come from my parents' medicine cabinet. How how terrible could it be? And they fail to realize that once they become addicted uh, to that narcotic, that their addiction will eventually progress to heroin because of two reasons. First of all, um, their body is developing a tolerance to the the uh, narcotic, and so they need stronger and stronger dosages in order to get the same dopamine dump. Um, and so heroin is twenty times stronger than prescription drugs. So they'll turn to heroin for that reason, but also because it's cheaper. You know, it only costs maybe ten dollars a balloon, uh, whereas uh, prescription drugs on the street will cost a dollar a milligram or eighty dollars for and cotton. So uh, we need to do something about the prescription drugs that are in the state that have caused this heroin epidemic. you really got to think to yourself, why do we have a heroin epidemic today when we didn't have this problem in our suburbs, in our farm towns, in our small cities um, 10 years ago? What has changed? And the answer is, in the last 10 years, we've gone from 70 million Pills, uh, doses being prescribed in the state of Ohio to 790 million doses being prescribed in the state of Ohio in a 10 year period. So that's a tenfold increase. It looks like a hockey stick if you graph it out in a 10 year period. And it's that over prescribing of the painkillers, which people are getting hooked on, that then has led to this uh, massive heroin epidemic. And so, with regards to future legislation, We've got to go back to the very beginning of the pipeline and begin to prevent some of this. And so, I think there's a number of things we can do. The first thing is we can make uh, tamper-resistant narcotics more available. Right now, they're more expensive than the crushable narcotics. But look, in order to get the immediate release of the pain medication to your brain... Uh, The way you abuse prescription narcotics is to crush the pills and then snort them or you crush them and dissolve them in water and inject them, which gets the immediate release of the medication to your brain.
1: They're produced out there now, the tamper-resistant varieties. Why aren't they more readily available? Well, they're
2: more expensive because that tamper-resistant technology, some of which acts like a rock so you can't crush it, others uh, acts like a jelly bean so you imagine trying to crush and snort a jelly bean, you know, it doesn't go into a powder. Another one has a naloxone core to it. So if you crush it, the naloxone is released, which cancels out the effect of the drug. <clears throat> Those are just more expensive technologies. And so in some cases, we have uh, step therapies that are required by the payment plans that were required to use, you to use a crushable version of a narcotic before you get to the tamper-resistant narcotics. So this prevents the prescribers, the physicians and doctors and dentists, Uh, From prescribing those medications, which would make, which would put a lot uh, more safer medication into our medicine cabinets.
1: So, I guess I I don't get that. Sorry, this progression. uh, What's the basis of you know how do you progress from that from one to the other? As far as in the insurance company's eyes, how do you suddenly qualify? For non crush proof and start off with crush proof
2: well I think that's the difficulty is that you're never gonna fail on the crushable version because it's the same molecule it's the same narcotic so and let me tell you what it works great works great for taking away people's pain that's not the problem the problem is that in a lot of cases people then progress to addiction or uh, they intentionally try to you know crush it and use it uh, to to gain a high so we've got to put safer medication in our medicine cabinets is the bottom line. So we have a bill that does that that would take away that step therapy process out of the payment plans. The second thing we need to do in terms of the payment plans is, you know, uh, prescribers won't do things that they're not paid to do. And so if we stop paying for this over prescribing that's gone on over the last 10 years, Uh, then prescribers will stop doing it. And so we want to put some prior authorizations in at certain levels that we know are critical points so that medication is not prescribed past that point without somebody else taking a look at, is this really necessary? So there's three main things with that. The first is putting a prior authorization in at 80 MED or morphine equivalent doses per day. That's a heck of a lot of pain medication. So, once you get past that ceiling, there really needs to be a prior authorization to make sure that you're taking the appropriate level of pain medication because once you get past 50 MED, your risk of an overdose goes up by three times. So, you are all of a sudden in a very elite category where you're at a risk of, of dying from your prescription. So, there needs to be a prior authorization there. There needs to be a prior authorization at the three-month mark because that's the point at which you go into a chronic pain situation where you're going to be on that medication for a long, long period of time. And then finally, there needs to be a prior authorization anytime uh, you prescribe a narcotic and a benzodiazepine. That combination is a deadly combination and accounts for many of the prescription drug overdoses that we find in the state of Ohio. So, that's some of the legislation that we're looking at right now at the state level, and I think there's probably some things that we could do at the federal level as well.
1: So, anything in terms of um, removing the link between satisfaction and, you know, the uh, compensation?
2: That's absolutely a problem, and it drives a lot of the overprescribing. The physicians actually get reimbursed based upon how well they score in terms of patient satisfaction. So you can imagine going into the physician and complaining about lower back pain. And he says, well, Robert, uh, you know, you got to lose weight and uh, go to some physical therapy, which is going to be pretty tough. And, um, you know, we're not going to, I'm not going to prescribe anything for you in terms of a narcotic to deal with the pain. Well, I might give him a very low patient satisfaction score because that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to leave with a prescription that took care of all my pain.
1: Sure,
2: Um, And then he gets dinged or she gets dinged as a physician uh, for that lower patient satisfaction score. So we've got to eliminate that link between physician reimbursement and the patient satisfaction on the pain issue. So, and that's another piece that actually we're pursuing in terms of legislation.
1: Excellent. So is there something that we can pursue as far as the FDA is concerned and working with them? Um, it seems to me that they've got, they've approved a bunch of drugs on the premise that has turned out to be incorrect. It's
2: I, killing people. I agree. I mean, this, these drugs that the FDA has approved, and the FDA ultimately is responsible for making sure that drugs are safe for the citizens of the United States of America. Now, this drug epidemic, which has been um, caused by prescription painkillers, all approved by the FDA has now killed more Americans in the Vietnam War. Wow! And when you have a product that's on the market like that, and the regulatory body essentially has done nothing to stem the tide of this epidemic, um, you know, I think that there's got to be action taken. And I think that part of the problem is the FDA approval criteria. You know, the FDA uh, mandate is that they should approve medications that show a substantial evidence. Of safety and effectiveness when taken as prescribed. But we know in a lot of cases that people are taking the medications as prescribed and they're becoming addicted. And in many cases, they're taking them not as prescribed and they're also becoming addicted. But they've got to do more to take these faulty products off the market, just like we would demand if we had this many people die from airbags in the United States. Why should it be any different?
1: Absolutely. So now let's turn to treatment and some laws that perhaps are hindering our ability to address this just massive epidemic that we have. We have one that was enacted, I believe it was 1965, called the IMD rule. Can you share, it limits the number of beds in a a treatment facility to 16. Can you share a little bit about that and what can be done with our listeners?
2: Sure, that was put in place, uh, I believe, uh, in the Kennedy administration and essentially the movement at the time was that they didn't want people with mental illness to be institutionalized in the state of Ohio. So they didn't want to pay us through the Medicaid system, us being the state, for um, these large institutions. They wanted to incentivize those people with mental illness to go out into the communities and not be institutionalized. So they created this cap on the number of treatment beds of 16. And this, this is probably more than anything else, in my opinion, one of the greatest hindrances for us effectively treating uh, this addiction epidemic. And I think that what we need to do is remove that IMD limit for providers that are doing a wonderful job of treating people with addiction. Because if you're limiting their capacity to only 16 beds in their facility, basically what you're telling some of these providers is that no matter what a brilliant job you're doing in terms of recovery rates, you have some providers that have 60, 70% recovery rates. Um, Our statewide average for heroin addiction is 10%. Can you imagine when you go from the possibility of recovery to the probability of recovery? That's a huge step forward. Why would you not want that treatment provider that's been able to create those type of treatment outcomes, why would you not want them to treat 500 people? I mean, if they are that good at what they do, why should they be limited to only treating 16 people at a time?
1: So that begs the question, why the heck don't they do away with that rule?
2: Um, that's a federal rule. It's in the federal uh, Medicaid program and part of the st- uh, federal statute. And I think they absolutely need to get rid of it. And I don't know the answer to that. Since I mean, I'm on the state level as a state mm-hmm. legislator. Sure. I don't know. But I think that we have to advocate for them to get rid of that rule for addiction treatment. I really do.
1: Okay. So now let's talk about um, another rule. And I'm not sure that I understand this rule entirely, but um, it has to do with the physicians that are involved in medication-assisted therapy, utilizing Suboxone, and some artificial limitation in terms of the number of patients that they can be working with at the time. Could you explain that for our listeners?
2: Right again. And this is a federal rule that essentially places a cap on the number of people that you can tr- a physician can treat at one time with medication-assisted treatment. For the listeners, I'm sure that they probably already know this, but uh, medication-assisted treatment is typically something like Suboxone, uh, Methadone, or uh, Vivitrol. Those are the brand names of the drugs. And essentially, uh, some of the drugs occupy the mu receptor in your brain. Uh, and activate the mu receptor to some extent so that the dopamine level in your brain is constant. Um, The other drug kind of covers up the mu receptor in your brain. It takes away those cravings and, again, regulates the dopamine level. Um, But we know that people who don't use medication-assisted treatment because, because heroin addiction is such a physical addiction, it's very difficult for them to succeed at treatment. You have to take away some of those physical cravings. And that's what the medication does. Um, unfortunately for Suboxone, um, even after a prescriber gets the DATA 2000 certification, they're initially limited to only prescribing for 30 patients. And thereafter, once they get started and they've reached a certain level of um, time, then they per- can only prescribe for 100 patients. But again, it begs the question, if you have, a say, a psychiatrist, and we only have 1,500 psychiatrists in the entire state of Ohio, that are trying to uh, address this problem not only this heroin addiction but also uh, you know mental illness across the state with only 1500 psychiatrists if you have a psychiatrist or physician that has this data 2000 license and again they're getting 60 or 70 percent recovery rates why would you not want to lift the restrictions off that provider and allow them to prescribe for as many people uh, as they can treat in that facility so that you can get larger throughput i'll tell you in talking with parents, the number one issue that parents have is that I can't get my kid into treatment. I can't get my kid into treatment. We have placed these artificial limits on treatment uh, that are arbitrary and don't uh, do anything to help us. and matter of fact, in many cases hurt our ability to react to the heroin epidemic.
1: What should these families do to advocate change here? It's clear that change has to come on these issues. On these artificial limitations as you say Um, how can they make a difference
2: well the easiest way to make a difference is to contact your own state representative your own state senator your own congressman your own your own US senator in the state of Ohio Uh, because obviously as a constituent they're going to listen to you that's their job is to take care of their constituents in their areas so I think that is the best way to advocate Um, and then also through some of the uh, groups that are now being formed Make your website is a piece of that, Um, and other parents that are now saying, look, enough is enough. We need action on this and to join one of those groups um, and help advocate for change in the system.
1: The website you're referring to is cover2.org. Just had to put in a Mm -hmm. plug there. Mm -hmm. So let's go back for just a second to, you were uh, referring a little bit earlier, Representative Sprague, to success rates for different treatment facilities. And I know that's kind of a tough thing to get your arms around. Um, As a parent, I had a real tough time understanding what, you know, uh, they were, what they were measuring when it came to success rates. So can you shed a little bit of light on that? A, you know, the successful ones, what really are they measuring And, and what should a parent look at in terms of their, quote unquote, you know, success rates?
2: Well, I think uh, one of the, and and again, I'm not a treatment professional, so people may disagree with me about this, but um, as we've heard people talk about it, one of the things that always sticks in my mind is, uh, you know, the length of sobriety, how long someone is able to maintain their sobriety. And from what I've been told, every week that you're able to maintain sobriety, you're building recovery capital, Um, even though you might relapse in the future. Each and every week that you're sober, you build recovery capital. And so I think that that is tremendously important that they look at the average length of sobriety coming out of a treatment program. The second piece that I've been told is that successful treatment programs have six core elements to them. They have a detox or stabilization element, number one. Number two, medication-assisted treatment, which we've already talked about. Number three, um, intensive behavioral therapy with a counselor. Number four, uh, some sort of a group program that they follow with a good group leader that they, uh, that knows what they're doing and that they like. And number five, that they're able to get a mentor or a sponsor that is able, you know, somebody else who's already in recovery that understands what they're going through and that they like and respect and that will help keep them accountable. And then the sixth piece of that is having a sober living environment living in a place where sobriety is encouraged, like a recovery house, another sober living facility, um, basically getting away from all the people, places, and things that they were living uh, at at the time when they were using. And so, you know, those, I think, are the essential elements of care. And you want to look for a provider, from what I've been told, that is able to tightly integrate all those different aspects of treatment. Uh, the other thing that we've seen is highly effective and um, is, is the drug courts. Uh, in a lot of cases, the judge can use the power of the black robe in a drug court to all of a sudden put everybody on the same side. The defense attorney is no longer trying to uh, be compatible with the prosecutor. The prosecutor's no longer trying to get the maximum sentence for the person who has an addiction. Instead, everybody's on the same side along with the judge, and they're all trying to get this person better. Yeah. Um, and they're going to punish them when they relapse and they have a problem. And they're going to met out some punishment. And the defense attorney going to go, yes, Your Honor, absolutely. You know, this person needs to have a consequence. But, but similarly, when they have success, everybody is there to share in the success. And they're able to lower the uh, and give out more freedom, lower the consequences and give out more freedom as that person makes progress. And so drug courts, even though it's compulsory treatment, have been enormously successful in the state of Ohio. And it's something else that we funded um, in the last state budget because we felt it was that important.
1: Yeah, we uh, had the opportunity to go and visit Judge Mattia's drug court in Cuyahoga County in season one. And that was terrific. And, and one of the things that, uh, well, quite a few things impressed me about it. Um, number one, it really was compassionate. Um, the court was very, very involved in the lives of each one of the people that came behind or before Judge Matthias. He was very involved in it. And very empathetic, which is kind of unique um, and great. Um, And on top of that, they had a whole team of people involved in it. So he's connected with treatment. He's connected with housing. He's connected even with uh, employment opportunities. So uh, very unique and and just uh, for the right person, a a good fit. What should listeners know um, in terms of how they can make a difference uh, in the fight the opioid uh, against the opioid epidemic here?
2: Well, um, I think the first is to educate yourself um, and try to understand more about addiction and about the resources that are currently offered. And then I think the second, again, is to talk with your, uh, you know, both your, your local Adams boards. Our Adams boards are a wealth of information. They do a wonderful job um, of not only uh, directing people to treatment but also paying for treatment. And uh, so I think, you know, I think those are things that people can absolutely uh, engage with and connect into in their local communities. Um, and if you're willing to go to the state level or the federal level, I think those are uh, excellent places to advocate and make a difference too.
1: Okay. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. And Representative Sprague, is there anything else, any final thoughts that you might have for uh, for our listeners and for our audience?
2: Um, I guess I would just say that it's a complex problem. Uh, It's a tough problem to address. Obviously, we didn't get here um, in a short amount of time, and so it's going to take a little bit of time to unwind how we got here. Um, We've shut down the pill mills down in the southeastern part of the state that kind of started the problem. We've shut down doctor shopping in the state of Ohio uh, where people will go to multiple doctors and get prescriptions because we're requiring every prescriber now to check the ORS system which is our prescription monitoring system for narcotics. Uh, and we So we've seen a 71% decline in terms of the amount of doctor shopping. Uh, we've made sure that uh, we get parental consent for any minor that's getting a narcotic prescription so that the parent knows um, how that's going to affect their child. We've created new rules for hospice that prescribes an enormous amount of narcotic medication to make sure that After somebody passes, they destroy that medication so it doesn't get out onto the street and create a problem for somebody. Um, We've also implemented in our health curriculums and our schools a requirement that they teach kids the link between prescription drugs and the heroin, uh, eventually coming in and using heroin and having a heroin addiction. And yet, for all those things that we've done, we are we are still having a, a massive problem in the state of Ohio. Um, you know we need to do more, and uh, I think that uh, uh, part of, part of part of the process is talking about it and making sure that people have um, access to this kind of information and understanding what is going to make a difference in terms of, of curbing this terrible epidemic. So thank you, Greg, for having me. I really greatly appreciate it.
1: Okay, and thank you. We've been visiting with Representative Robert Sprague, representing the 83rd District in the Ohio House of Representatives. And I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Please share this podcast with someone you know and or love, and maybe together we can make a difference. Thank you.